Thank you so much for joining The Broken Road to Mental Health in Life and in Business. I am your host, Sharon Feckety, the author of The Broken Road to Mental Health in Life and in Business. I hope you will go on Amazon and purchase the book or download it on Audible and listen to the book so you can get some more insight as to why I decided to start this podcast show a few years ago and continue the conversation. You're going to hear from professionals. You're going to hear from people with lived experience, those that struggle with anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation. Uh, You're going to listen to people that have recovered. Uh, You're going to hear resources about how you can navigate through this broken road to mental health and life in a business. And you will certainly be hearing me talk about the importance of having this discussion in business today. That is what I speak about at conferences, and I hope that you will take it seriously. We need to speak more about mental health in the workplace. So thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. Please be sure to tell somebody you know that might be struggling to subscribe, to listen, to watch and share it with others. You are not alone on this broken road to mental health. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the broken road to mental health in life and in business, or welcome to this broken road. I'm um, always happy to speak to any human being that understands that it is us, not them versus us. And I'm going to have a very candid and um, thoughtful conversation today with our guest today, Dr. Ross Morin. You know, I threw it out there to see how that landed. I'm not good at pronunciating difficult last names. And my last name is, is one of those. So welcome to the show. I'm excited to talk to you today about your new book, Thriving with Anxiety, Nine Tools to Make Your Anxiety Work for You. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me and uh, for making me smile. <laughs> well, good. That's always the best way to start and hopefully finish. So I want to know before anything else, I want to know your why. Why did you decide not just to write this book, but why did you decide to go into this incredible business that you are in that is helping so many people like me? Why did I start to, why did I go into mental health? Wow, that's a bigger question. I thought you were going to ask me about the book. That one I can tell you about. Um, Let's start with the book and then we'll move back. Um, I've been interested in helping people with mental health for a long time. Um, I've been working on this for about 20 years as a clinician, as an academician, doing research and doing administrative work to help support the work of other uh, clinicians and researchers to advance science and to advance clinical practice. And I realized during COVID-19 that we are getting a lot wrong, especially when it comes to anxiety, and that public education really needs to be prioritized because so many of the messages that are out there about anxiety today, I believe are, it's, they're well-intended. There's, there's good intentions behind them, but I think there's an insidious, um, effect that they're having and actually increasing the anxiety epidemic. Mm-hmm. Driving with anxiety, this book that I wrote, is about understanding that we we have to stop getting rid of our anxiety. Mm-hmm. And my sense is that the minute we start to feel anxious, we try to get rid of it and that just makes it worse, as opposed to embracing it and using it in a positive way. 
And that's what this new chapter in my career, if you will, is about um, resetting the balance, trying to change our relationship with anxiety instead of trying to get rid of it all the time, focusing on how we can use it as a positive force. And I really believe we can um, with the right tools and strategies. Right. So now let's hear about your why. But beyond that, why? So beyond that, why? why? Beyond why? I always want to know why anybody gets, you know, my, my trajectory of life was not to write a book about my own story. But when you are living in the world that we're living in today, to not share the why behind uh, doing something that is so necessary, is so uh, comforting to hear that we are not alone in any struggle and that there is help and there, there is hope. So I always like to understand the why behind, especially your field is my favorite field in the world. Anybody that is helping anybody struggling with mental health is a top five fave for Sharon. So why did you make okay, that? Now I think I understand your question. Okay. So when I was in college, I definitely had a good deal of anxiety and learning to deal with that um, through a, a variety of different methods, uh, was something that moved me forward in many ways in my life, becoming more self-aware, having better relationships, uh, developing spiritually, frankly. And those were my tools to be able to, to really harness my anxiety and use it in a positive way. And when I was looking at options for career, um, you know, I'd considered law, I'd considered business, I'd considered all sorts of different, you know, professions, um, but, uh, psychology just seemed like a, a better fit to be able to try to get these messages out and to try to, um, understand better. Why do people get anxious? What is anxiety? How is it that we can deal with this? And also, of course, to help people and understand things along the way. So mm. that's Great. what I like to do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so tell us then, um, I mean, it's so great, you know, an associate professor at Harvard Medical School, director of the McLean Hospital Spirituality and Mental Health Program. As soon as I read McLean Hospital Spirituality and Mental Health Program, it was like a hard stop for me, and I immediately wanted to know more. So I'd like to hear a little bit about your thoughts on spirituality and, and mental health. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, first, just anecdotally and Personally, spirituality is a part of my life. And when I started going into the mental health field of, for me, psychology, I was pretty surprised at the extent to which spirituality was really not talked about. And anytime it was talked about, it was either negative mm -hmm. um, or the only thing that came up was like religious OCD, like scrupulosity or religious psychosis. And, mm -hmm. and to me, that was always on the side of really the, the, real ex lived experience of many people who, whether they are or are not religious, for whom spirituality often is central in terms of their mental health, where there gives an orienting framework for having meaning or for having purpose or for connecting with others within certain communities, faith communities or otherwise, um, for trying to make sense of things that we don't like, for trying to um, just understand the why, as you started with, the why in life, um, and, uh, and, other, and other factors giving us a sense of hope. You know, these these are these are big issues in our mm -hmm. lives that everybody has to grapple with. And a lot of folks gravitate towards spirituality. So when I um, started down this path, I, I ended up at McLean Hospital for my um, 
internship and postdoctoral fellowship in my training to study cognitive behavior therapy and dialectic behavior therapy for acute psychiatry. It was nothing to do with spirituality. But once I was there um, and I had this interest in it, some philanthropic funding became available for me to be able to study this. And to the next thing I know, uh, you know, uh, we started actually a, a hospital-wide program uh, because it, you're not going to believe this. In Eastern Massachusetts, 60% of our patients, nearly 60% of our patients want spiritually integrated care. Mm. And, the, and the, the largest group of those patients, 40% of them, are non-religious at all. They have no religious mm -hmm. faith. So this is the type of topic that I think in mental health professionals don't think about enough. And uh, it's often on the minds of people who are struggling. Um, and, uh, you know, for those reasons, it, it, it definitely uh, behooves our field to, to uh, look at it more carefully, which is what I'm very pleased to be able to do. Oh my goodness. Yes, please. Yes, more of that. Yes, more of that. <laughs> oh. All right. So let's talk a little bit about uh, your decision. You know, sometimes it comes in a whisper. Sometimes it comes in a pandemic to write this book. Right. But, you know, it's it's a, it's a difficult decision. Yeah. It is a big commitment. So tell me about that. What what was that like for you? You know, I mean, you're in busy practice. Uh, writing a book is a whole thing. You have to promote it. So what was it like for you? Uh, what did that look like for you to make that decision first and foremost uh, to write this book, Thriving with Anxiety? It was fairly anxiety provoking, I'll tell you, and it still is to this day. You know, it's it's. I feel like I'm out on a limb. I feel like I have mm. uh, a really different approach to dealing with anxiety. What I'm saying is, don't get rid of it. You know, mm. stop trying to put out the fire. Accept it, and once we do, then we can actually use it in a positive way. And that's very. Uh, counter to a lot of the ways that we're thinking about this. So first of all, this is new territory because I'm not used to writing popular books. I'm used to writing academic books. Mm -hmm. Second of all, I'm, you know, saying something that I think is con somewhat controversial. Um, and, uh, but all of that, you know, third of all is uh, I'm interested in the public impact. I think that we have to, we live in a time of an anxiety epidemic. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to uh, reset and start to reconceptualize how, what anxiety is and change our relationship with it. Yeah. We live in a world where artificial intelligence decides to choose a thumbs up while you're talking. And you see that? Life. Yeah. There it is again. Wow. Look at that. I mean, come on. <laughs> I was Did... wondering how that happened before. <laughs> that is... Fantastic. So once you turn on those AI tools, uh, they work in Zoom, which is, wow, you want to talk about anxiety. It's wonderful that you are using anxiety to your advantage. Yeah, nothing. <laughs> Jazz hands, nothing. <laughs> Thumbs up. Well, I think that it's smart enough to know uh, that it's only going to even come out when it agrees with something or when it's excited about it. So, wow. All right. Let, let us talk about some of these tools I, I would highly recommend and encourage everybody that's watching or listening to follow you on social uh, and all of the information of how to connect Thanks. and to get the book will be in the show notes. Uh, one of the things that I really loved 
was your take on exercise. I'm a huge sure. proponent. I went running this morning over the Bel Air Causeway Bridge. Oh, good for you. That's Thank a, you. That's a nationally Thank known, beautiful running route. It's so gorgeous. And okay. I am so blessed to live in this place where I can in October do that. But tell us, you know, why is that so important? You know, because everybody get out and get some exercise. You'll feel uh, better. There's so much more to it. I'll tell you my take on it. There's a couple of things going on. I've spoken to some of, some of my colleagues are doing research on this. So I, I have a bit of an in. Um, there's a couple of things going on. The first is the endorphins, right? You know, so people people get that, uh, just a boost, um, um, you know, in terms of regulating you. Another thing is it's going to tire you out. So it's going to be easier to fall asleep at night. So you're less likely to be up worried doing stuff you're more likely to sleep better when you sleep better so there's all this physiological stuff going on in terms of regulation however there's something even more interesting i think when you exercise when you were running this morning what happened to your breathing rate no oh, it's just you know trying to catch my breath yes yeah, which is good that's what you want what mm -hmm. happened to your heart rate one kept going up right you're hitting instead of uh your resting pulse or whatever it is, you know, 60, yeah. 70, 80, depending on if you're a runner, probably probably around there to maybe even 130, 140, mm -hmm. depending on, depending on the variety of factors. That's pretty high, right? So I'm probably maybe even double. Um, okay. What else happened? How's your, how about sweat? How about your body temperature? Yeah. Well, it, for a Floridian, it's pretty cool out for us today, but yeah, yeah, that's outside. But what happens to your internal body? Temperature? Yes. I was feeling warmer. It's going to increase. And that's why yeah. you sweat in order mm -hmm. to do this right? What happens yeah. to your digestion when you run, if it's long distance, at least it slows, it mm -hmm. slows down. And there can be some stomach. Some people have some stomach. Those are symptoms of anxiety. Mm -hmm. And the reason that happens is because when you're running, you're increasing your adrenaline flow, mm -hmm. which is also an anxiety thing. That's, that's actually the physiological trigger for an anxiety response. So in other words, what you're doing when you're running is you're showing your body that you can have symptoms of anxiety and it's actually pleasurable. It's mm -hmm. actually something that you want to experience and you're not nervous about it. The problem with our society is that the minute we start to feel uncomfortable, we judge ourselves. Something's wrong with me. Mm -hmm. I'm broken. Why doesn't everyone else feel this way? It's like an automatic thing. It's like, like a cued response. Like the minute we start to feel uncomfortable, ah, I'm some, and then that releases more adrenaline and then the symptoms cascade. So what you're doing when you're exercising is decreasing your, what we call anxiety sensitivity. You're becoming less sensitive to the symptoms of anxiety, the physiological symptoms of anxiety, because you're like, oh, that's just my body getting activated. Mm. So that some, in some models is actually one of the key factors that, um, uh, and reasons why anxiety, why exercise rather is such a critical tool for anxiety. Yeah, I love it. What other tips? Uh, yeah. What other tips would you offer? I don't even like the word tips. I was trying to. I was going to say something. I don't have any tips in my book. Mm -hmm. First and foremost, this is this book will my, thriving with anxiety will not make you less anxious. Right, because you said not nine tools. To you actually anxiety, said right to make nine your anxiety tools work for you. you. I'm not right. saying to get rid of your anxiety. Mm -hmm. Get have less anxiety. Don't read my book. Right, <laughs> right. I but like. I'll it. tell you what's going to happen. You'll read every other book. You'll try every other potion. You'll try every other pill. You'll do everything you can to get rid of your anxiety, and you will see that you can't. So now yeah. what? Then you can read my book when you're right. ready. 
actually accept that anxiety is a part of good. It's going to be a part of your life. You're going to be uncomfortable. And now how do we use that in a constructive way? That's what my book is for. I'm so excited to tell you about our sponsor, Valley Bank. To know that we have a bank that thinks so much about mental health in the workplace has made me so proud. Valley Bank is my bank for business and has been since the day I opened 10 years ago. When I was introduced to them, I was told that I was going to really like everybody that worked for the bank. And I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. Turns out they were right. I like everybody that works there. They are good people, nice people, and they care about others. They care about the community. But the thing I am most proud of is how they are welcoming the conversation about mental health in the workplace into their bank and willing to take that risk and talk about it in our community. Valley Bank is definitely forging the way in business to open up this conversation. If it wasn't for my father's employee assistance program back in the day, 28 years ago, I would not be on this podcast today. It just goes to show when you offer these resources to your company and to your team, miracles can happen. I am one of them. So Valley Bank not only offers an employee assistance program to their staff and their team members, but they also send out these great vitality monthly communications, bi-weekly wellness resources, and they're willing to sponsor a podcast that is about mental health in life and in business. So if you have not connected with Valley Bank, I highly recommend you do. Gotcha. So let's talk about the current state of the world and how much anxiety everybody is feeling. Uh, yeah. It's an anxious time. Mm -hmm. It's a hard time. I, I, you know, personally, yes, you know, as, as a, as a Jewish psychologist, as a observant Jewish psychologist, as someone who's, you know, got ties to Israel and, and has gone there many, many times, his family there. And it's really nerve wracking. Mm. It's really nerve wracking. And I am using that anxiety as much as I can for the sake of connection. I know it's not going to go away because the, the pro let's let's be realistic. This is this is this is this is a serious conflict. It's going to be it's going to be a while. Mm -hmm. So the question therefore isn't how do I have more control over the world, which I don't. How do I have more predictability over things that I can't predict? But how do I actually use that discomfort in a constructive way. Yeah. How do you? How do you? A couple okay. of things. Um, I've been talking a lot about it. You know, in the past, I never spoke about my feelings, certainly not in like a podcast, like publicly. Right. You know, as a clinician, I, I was always taught like there's you and then there's the patient. Right. I'm done with that. Yay. <laughs> Can I'm I get an amen for that? I'm done with it. You know, we're all in a continuum and, um, and I'm struggling right now. So that in of itself, I'm speaking about it. Good. Like I would ask a patient to do, like if someone comes in my office and they're having a hard time, I'm going to dig and ask them to talk about what's on their mind and get, try to get them to open up. Cause I know that that helps them. Yeah. I'm doing the same thing, not only with you, but also, you know, I'm talking to my wife about it a lot. 
every day we're having at least some sort of a conversation about it shedding some tears over it mm-hmm. it's drawing us closer together it increases our intimate our emotional intimacy and our connection with each other mm-hmm. that, that's what who doesn't want to take your anxiety and pour it into a relationship in order to create more closeness we all mm-hmm. need that shit to call and cry on and the mm-hmm. current crisis is in some ways an opportunity for us to band together mm-hmm. speaking to my friends about it you know i spoke to some of my colleagues about it for the first time ever and it's been it's been really in some ways i feel more connected to my colleagues and to my friends and you know to my family than i have in a long time mm. thank you for sharing that with us and i i want to honor this space for everybody who is struggling through including myself what's going on in the world and um i did i watched your video that you put out about it and how you were speaking to your wife and how there is comfort there and speaking out loud about it is that vulnerability is almost the the perfect resolution if there is a perfect resolution to actually say the words that you're thinking yes especially in a professional world right i had uh briefly mentioned off camera Never in a million years did I think while working as a consultant for doctors that I would ever tell anybody that I was not, not only sober, but that I was suicidal and that I struggled so tremendously in early adulthood because I was told there is your personal life and there is your professional life. And as a boss or as a consultant or in a professional field and Boy, do I get to see it with uh, with doctors, psychiatrists, psychologists. It is very difficult to be like this human being. <laughs> how would how would anybody not be affected by this world? And what a beautiful way to be able to connect with not just friends and colleagues, but patients as well. Because I think that we are certainly in a time that requires much bravery. Yeah, I I I thank you. I appreciate your kind comments. You know, I'll 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 add I'll add to it. You know, I know the title of your book is The Broken Road to Mental Health, and it is it, it is broken. And perhaps for this reason, you know, in other areas of medicine, a person doesn't have to have cancer to treat patients to be an oncologist. You don't have to have a broken arm in order to be, you know, uh, uh, in in order to be an orthopedist. Mm-hmm. Um you don't need to have cataracts in order to be to be a surgeon who's who's working, you know, an ENT or in, somebody who's doing optical surgery. But when it comes to mental health, I think the more that we have and lean into that experience of difficulty, I don't think I have to have experienced psychosis in order to help my psychotic patients right. or to have had a suicide like suicidal episode in order to help my suicidal patients. But I certainly have to experience some degree of it distress and to acknowledge that I'm human and to acknowledge that I'm affected by my thoughts and my feelings and my behaviors and my surroundings and to lean into that distress and to have a better understanding of it. That is going to make me a better clinician, a much better, a much better uh, mental health clinician. Mm. And part of the broken road is our lack of leaning into it as a field. Thriving with anxiety is saying very clearly, this is a continuum. We are all on it. Whether you're flourishing, whether you're, it's in my intro, whether you're flourishing or languishing, 
right, just struggling a little bit, whether you're distressed and need professional assistance or whether you're severely distressed and need to be in a hospital setting, that entire continuum, we all need to learn to lean into our distress, use it, understand it, recognize it, and then grasp the opportunities to move forward. So we're all in it together, I think. I really believe that. Oh, yeah, me too. I say often, especially to women, because there's a lot of apologizing for crying. Yeah. Or apologize, right? This, yeah. oh, I'm sorry. You yeah. know, you start getting teary-eyed. and Even in therapy, oh, oh, do you have a tissue? I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry for feeling all of this pain, which the actual reason I'm here, but I'm sorry for that. To me, it's so fascinating. I'm very grateful that um, I learned, and I'll share with you briefly, that a long time ago, a, a, a dear friend of mine from New York, uh, because I have been very strong, right? You know, and this was this picture I was not only creating within myself, but to the outside world, you know, own my own business, work with physicians, all of the things. And one day I really broke open and started to cry. And all of these women, she was sitting at the table and all of these women started like one had their hand coming towards me. One was getting the tissue box and she said, don't touch her. And it was such a necessary thing to say because I needed to feel and break open instead of pushing all of it down. Yeah. Right. And I think that yeah. so many of us push it down. And we need, we need wonderful men like you that are professionals too, to say it is okay for us to feel distress and anxiety, but here are some tools that can help make your anxiety work. How could you not live in this world and be without anxiety today? Correct. Um, correct. I actually would be concerned if I wasn't upset today. That's the thing. That's it right now. I say to people all the time. I, if, God, I if, you, fine, if I felt totally fine with right. whatever's going on, then. That's when we should be concerned. Not a good, that's not a good indicator. The way, you know, in terms of anxiety, yeah. um, I love what you said before. Um, I, I have a, a saying that I tell all my uh, trainees, which is that you really want to be able to see your, your patients, your clients, whoever you work with at their worst. Yeah. And, and if they're, if they're holding back or if you're trying to comfort them, let them experience more distress in the session. That's what you're there for. And the reason why is because it's so curative. It's mm -hmm. so healing is a better word when we're able to feel a distress and someone else is with us and they're not judging us mm -hmm. and they're not trying to get it to go away. They simply are with us in our pain. Mm -hmm. That's what thriving with anxiety, that's an example of thriving with anxiety, where you're not trying to get it to go away. You're actually using it in the right context, whether it's in therapy or with somebody who you really love and trust, who will just be there with you. Mm. Yes. And be okay in the uncomfortability of the pain. Correct. Correct. That is the greatest gift. It that is. you can give to people, that we can give to people that we love, to just be there without judgment and and hold that room for them to just feel. What a what a beautiful space to be in. You know where this comes up a lot? Yeah. Parents of anxious children. 
Mm. Helicopter parents of anxious children who want their kids to feel good, feel happy, feel you know, content all the time, not to be crying, not to be anxious, not to be concerned. And they get so upset when, oh no, something's wrong with my kid. What does that mean about me? They're judging their kid. What does that mean about them? They're weak. They catastrophize. What's their life going to look like? They're going to go off the rails. And invariably, all that negative attention to the anxiety makes things worse. So many times, kids just need to know I'm anxious and I need my parents to love me and to care about me, even though I'm feeling anxious. Mm-hmm. Once you settle in, like, okay, the kid feels anxious. That's just who he is. Right. Usually it's like, oh, I'm allowed to feel anxious. Great. I don't feel anxious anymore. But, but you got to really lean into it. Um, and then, and then, and then the distress drops, you get yourself out of the cycle. Yeah. Not having to always fix everything is really beautiful. Definitely don't. Definitely don't fix everything, especially not for kids. They need to, you know, we talk about resilience here and there, but at the end of the day, we are not building a resilient generation. Kids today have shown the path of overcoming stress along the way they're shown you need to be successful and you need to look and be and feel perfect all the time which is a terrible message as opposed to no it's gonna suck you're gonna struggle it's gonna be painful and that's all right i'm still here with you yeah we're gonna do this together yeah i don't like the compliment anymore of being resilient I've started saying that a lot. People have told me a lot, you're so resilient. And I'm like, you know what? I really don't want to be resilient anymore. Interesting. Why not? Well, because I want to feel it. Resilience to me looks like armor. Oh, we're defining resilience differently. That's why you said it. Mm -hmm. Resilience to me is having that difficulty and Mm -hmm. remaining, uh, remaining steadfast to your values through Mm -hmm. that. It's not necessarily... Okay, this morning I went, I was working, I had, I had a workout. It was a book launch week. I had, a, you know, a couple, several major events. My head was not there. Yeah. My pace was uh, like a minute per mile off. It was, it was a mess of a workout. <laughs> and I think that was probably the most resilient exercise session that I've had in the last three months. Because mm. I did, I completed it. It yeah. sucked. It sucked. <laughs> it was terrible. I was a total mess. I love and it. That, and that's what made it resilient. So I don't think you have to be performing mm-hmm. to have resilience. You just got to stick with it and get it done. Okay. Well, since we're swapping stories about our workouts today, I'm going to tell you about mine because we're going to end on a high note. So everybody just check out the the notes. Look at the buy, the book, buy the book, watch the Instagram, do the, oh, do the thing. I went, I am, oh, I can't believe I'm going to admit this out loud. I feel like I can be very, very open right here, right now. So I'm just going to go with it. My husband and I made a decision. Well, my husband made a decision that he was going to do a half marathon next October. And it, it literally goes by our house down at the end of our block. So when he said that, I'm like, oh, I'm not doing that. Like I'm, I'm more of a 5k girl. And, um, I realized uh, as I just turned 51 that I have QTR, quality time remaining on this earth. That was a a phrase that was told to me recently. And I said, yeah, you know what? I'm 51. So how long can I do a half marathon? So I came home and I told him I was going to do it. Thank you. So now I've been training. I got a year, you know, so it's very slow. 
It's a good uh, distance. It is a good distance. Well, not it's for me. My favorite distance. Is it? Well, it feels like hell to me, but we're going in. We're going in strong. So I'm going up this bridge this morning where I used to look at everybody that went up and down the bridge with great awe. I could never do that. The negative self-talk. I could never do that. I can ride my bike up and down it 20 different times, but I could never run up it. Well, now I'm on day three of running up the hill. And here comes the best part, everybody. So I'm running up the hill. You're going to love this, David. And my bra snaps going up. Okay. There's a good ending to this though, David. Don't you worry. So I'm, oh, and I'm not in a good place. Just like I was no. in a bad place this morning. And now this happens. So I completely crack up. I am laughing at myself. I get to oh, the top God. of this bridge. And I realized the title of my second book. The Broken Open Road to Mental Health. <laughs> because I have been broken open since I wrote that book in more ways than my bra breaking open as I run up this causeway. So what do you think about that, David? <laughs> it's really bold to acknowledge what happened to all your hosts, all your all your guests and uh, all your fans. And everybody uh, knows that's how I am. If we're going to be all have, we all have moments like that, where it's like, you know, you're running like, oh man, I just peed on myself. <laughs> <laughs> this or, is life, everybody. And, and that's, that's in some ways at the core of the mental health crisis today is that we can't laugh at ourselves. We can't be like, oh no, I'm my body's getting anxious again. Like I'm feeling depressed again. There goes my mind again. Like, it's always like, no, like you got to feel good. And you got to feel like, you know, I can't believe this happened. And, you know, I spent so much money on that piece of clothing and, you know, there's all that frustration as opposed to like, it's got some perspective people. Like we're human, your body going to do weird things sometimes. And sometimes your bra is going to open on the causeway people going to happen. Well, if, like you said, we can't laugh, we'll cry. And sometimes the greatest medicine in life on this broken road is, uh, and thriving with anxiety is to laugh at ourselves. So I appreciate the opportunity to, to be real with you today, David, and show yeah. others that, that this is what life is all about. We really are in this together. And, uh, and I'm excited about this book that you've put out to the world for all of us to, to grow from. Thank you. Thank you. Really great conversation. Thank you. Don't forget to check out Valley Perry for all your banking needs. They are supporting mental health in the workplace and beyond. Thank you, Valley.